Uh, Ephesians, the sixth chapter. So I'm not going to try to do the whole chapter today. Uh, and everyone breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, I'm going to divide uh, this chapter into two parts. We're going to actually look at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And then next week, we're going to finish out the chapter. So last week, we talked about the family um, for the glory of God. So God created the family for his glory. And we're going to kind of continue on that theme, but, but I'm going to transition from that, from that exclusive focus on the family. We're going to talk a lot about family today. But all of these relationships, and this is kind of what we see in, in Ephesians, especially uh, when we get over here uh, in Paul in chapter 5, if you remember, he talks about being filled with the Spirit. And he's really continuing that thought in his writing here as we go from chapter 5 to chapter 6. Now, you guys remember when Paul wrote this, this was a letter. So it didn't have chapter headings and it didn't have verse numbers. Chapter headings, chapters and verse were added later to help us just to be able to read the Bible and study the Bible more easily and memorize the Bible more easily. But in its original form, this was a letter, a multi-page letter that was written to the church. So let's read the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 6. Children, are you ready? Because Paul's talking to you right here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as man pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do not, excuse me, and you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. Lord, as Paul prays for the church, enlighten the eyes of our understanding that we may see Jesus, that we may see the glory of the gospel in these verses, and we may see the glory of what our lives are meant to be in Christ as a witness to the world of the glory that is Christ and the church. Father, we ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we come into chapter 6 here, this is a continuation from chapter 5 where Paul's writing about the spirit-filled life. 
and what that is to produce in our life and in our lifestyle. So when we talk about our life, we can't talk about our life and not talk about a lifestyle. We don't, we don't live isolated lives from the rest of the world. I know some people try to do that, but try as you might, unless you live on some island somewhere remotely removed from everybody, all of us give witness, all of us interact in various ways with various people, from our families to our work relationships to our neighbors, our friends, whether we're playing, whether we're working, uh, whether we're in, in our homes in a family context. And all of us, all of us have a relationship with God. The question is, what is that relationship? And so Paul, in talking about the Spirit-filled life, so let me read this verse to you. It's in, in Ephesians chapter 5. Where he says, and don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't let some, don't let wine control your life. Now, Paul's not making, um, Paul's not writing that because he's trying to make a statement about whether it's a sin to drink alcohol or not. Here's the reality. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's a sin to drink alcohol. The Bible says it's a sin to be a drunkard. And why is it a sin to be a drunkard? It's a sin to be a drunkard because a drunkard has given their life over to drink. In other words, drink controls their life. Drink makes their decisions. Drink determines what they do. That's what a drunkard is. A drunkard is someone whose life is controlled by alcohol. And Paul is using this and he's saying, let the spirit control your life. In our modern culture, we have this term called a workaholic. And a workaholic is just as sinful as an alcoholic. Because a workaholic lets his work. A workaholic makes work and career and accomplishment an idol instead of holding it in its proper place. And so what controls the life of a workaholic? Their work does. What does Paul say? Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit control your life. And so this is the context that Paul then goes into talking to wives and talking to husbands and talking, as we see here in chapter 6, to children. So they're reading this letter to the church, and just like today, they're reading it in a context where the church is gathered and we have all ages. We've got adults and we have children. We've got parents, we've got their children. We've got grandpas and grandmas and little babies and everything in between. Single, married, everything. And Paul's writing to the church and he's writing about living a life that's governed by the Spirit, that allows the Spirit to control it and to govern the relationships that are inherent in our, in our life. So we see this common theme as Paul writes about the spirit-filled life. It's a theme of being first submitted to one another in the fear of the Lord. He writes that in, in verse 21 of chapter 5. Before he tells wives to be submitted to their own husbands, he said, submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying we're all submitted to God. We are all under submission to God. God is over all of us. 
So husbands, God is over you. Wives, God is over you. Masters, God is over you. Bond servants, God is over you. Children, God is over you. Now, from that point, then we have these other relationships where children are under the authority of their parents. And this is where he picks up in chapter 6. So this means that we're all under submission to God, but it's to be a willing and a joyful submission in him as we live a life that's governed by the Spirit. So to have a Spirit-filled, to, to live a Spirit-filled life is not to live a life where we're begrudgingly submitted to someone or something. It's to live a life that's filled with joy, and we willfully and we joyfully submit our lives to God. And we willfully and joyfully submit our lives to the various things that govern our lives or that are authority in our lives. So in these verses, Paul addresses the working out of the spirit-filled life as it applies to the various relationships that involve men, women, and children. So we come to chapter 6, verse 1, and he addresses children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, do you, do you hear what God is saying to you in the commandment? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So in these verses, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through for Paul specifically addresses children. He also addresses fathers, as we're going to see in just a little bit. And he gives a command for children to obey their parents in the Lord, and he calls this right. And then he reinforces this command with the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. And then Paul reminds us that this is the first commandment that's given with promise. So the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother is a commandment God gave along with the promise. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So here's what the Bible says, children. Honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. We have an after-school program designed for at-risk kids that we are involved with. And at-risk is a label that's given to these kids. And some of these kids have gotten into trouble to the point that they can't be on a regular school campus and they're sent over to juvenile justice in Georgetown and they wear uh, a uniform and they wear camo and it's a military environment. And guess, guess what's happened? Guess how these kids have come to that place? Because they didn't have people in their lives reminding them that they are commanded to obey, to honor their father and their mother. There was no one reminding them constantly Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And if you do this and you honor your parents, it will go well with you in life. We have prisons full of people who grew up basically without any authority. They were left to themselves to do whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. They didn't have 
a father. Maybe they didn't have a mother. They didn't have people in the home that was there to bring them up. And in raising themselves, guess what? It didn't go well with them. So God doesn't tell us this. God doesn't command our children to make life miserable for them. God commands this for our children and for parents because this creates safety. And it causes life to be well, to be much better than it otherwise could be. Doesn't mean you won't go through struggles. Doesn't mean you won't go through hard times. But it does mean that it will be well with you. So Paul gives this command for children to obey their parents. He says it's right. And then he reinforces it with the fifth commandment of the ten commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. So children are commanded to obey their parents in the Lord. To obey in the Lord is a qualifier regarding how and what we are commanded to obey. Obey your parents in the Lord means obey those things and obey in a way that is consistent with the Lord. Now I know we have no parents in here that would do this, but just as an extreme example, uh, this, this commandment, implies that parents are going to require obedience in matters that are God-honoring and God-glorifying, right? That it's implied and understood that parents, you're not to require your children to do things that would break the commandment of God. We worked with a family a number of years ago And there was an aunt who ended up taking her nephew because the mom had got into trouble and the child was not raised in a functional home. And by the time he came to us, he was eight years old. And so we were really involved with this family and the mom lived, did not live in town. The aunt was here and she uh, was given the child and the child um, came to live with her, and so we spent a lot of time, and so this child had never really experienced much of anything except dysfunction and hardship, lived in a pretty remote area of the state. And so when when he came to live here, then we would take opportunity to take this child and and, and, and have him experience things that he didn't get to experience a lot of times. And so I remember... um, when he first came here, uh, he went into a store and came out of the store and he had this item and somebody said, what, where, where'd you get that? He said, well, I got it in the store. Said, well, well, who bought that for you? Well, I, no one bought, I just took it. I stole it. He said, you stole it? That's wrong. Well, my mom used to have me go in the store and take stuff all the time. She taught me to do that. And she didn't tell me it was wrong. Eight years old. It's what I do. My mom wants something. She has me go in the store and get it for her. And if I get out unnoticed, untouched, great. If not, how hard are they going to be on a six or seven or eight-year-old kid? While mama's outside waiting for him to bring the goods to her. 
Children, I'm just going to tell you right now, if your parents ever ask you to steal something for them, that you are rightly to disobey them and obey God because the Bible says thou shalt not steal. (laughs) Now that's an extreme example, but there is something implied here that parents, the obedience you require of your children should be an obedience that honors and glorifies God. Children, honor your parents. It doesn't, Paul doesn't just say, obey your parents. Paul says, honor your parents, because he quotes the fifth commandment here. Let me, let me read a quote to you from the pulpit commentary. It says, honor is higher than obedience. It is the regard due to those who, by divine appointment, are above us, and to whom our most respectful consideration is due. Father and mother, though not quite on a footing of equality in their relation to each other, because the Bible just got through teaching us that dad, husband, you're the head of the family. You're to take responsibility as the spiritual head of your home. So guess where God puts that responsibility squarely on your headship? So it shouldn't be mom prodding you to get out of bed to go to church. You should be getting your family up and encouraging them to come together and worship the Lord. But here's the reality. Both father and mother are equal as objects of honor and obedience to their children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, that means honor your parents. Trust me, you wouldn't want to live life without your parents. Now, that doesn't mean that children don't grow up in horrible conditions. And some children, I know personally, of families who have their children taken away. Understand, those realities exist because these commands have not been followed. Parents who don't know how to parent their children, parents who are abusive to their children, or more than likely parents who were abused themselves and and didn't have an example of parenting for themselves. So they just did what they learned to do. So we go back to this. We go back to the Scripture where the Scripture teaches us, this is why it teaches us this, that the foundation of our society, the foundation of our culture is the family. This is why the family is so important. It's why God created the family. It's why we should value family. It's why we should do everything within our power to help families and encourage families to walk this out, to live this out in a way that honors and glorifies God. You can't spend your life obsessing over your mistakes or obsessing over what you didn't have. I I have no doubt that there are people in this room today who didn't have the best relationships, perhaps, with your families. But don't use that as an excuse to not learn and allow God to mold you and shape you and help you become a father or a mother according to the biblical model so that those cycles can be broken those characteristics that you learned from your parents 
can be broken in Jesus and you can renew your mind to the truth of God's word and you can become a God-honoring and God-glorifying parent. Children, you can become a God-honoring and God-glorifying child. And we're not just children of our parents when we're little. You are an adult and you're still to honor your father and your mother. Now I want you to think about this. The Jews considered this the weightiest of the weightiest commands of the law as the promised reward attached to it included length of days. And why did they consider it so weighty? Because to honor God is to honor your father and your mother. For God commands that we bestow this honor. So to honor God is to honor his commandments. And as we desire and, seek, and, and as we seek to obey them, we are honoring God. So as we desire and seek to obey and honor our parents, children, you're honoring God. Adult children, as you seek to honor your parents, you are honoring God. So to honor them is not only to obey them in the Lord, but it's to have respectful consideration due the position of authority and responsibility given them by God. In short, to honor someone is determined not only by your actions, but by the attitude of your heart. Then Paul addresses... Paul addresses fathers in verse 4. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children. So when Paul commands fathers to not provoke their children to anger, he's teaching us how we are to obey the rest of this command. How we bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So he commands fathers to not provoke your children to anger, but he commands that the children be brought up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And this command addressing the demeanor of a father or a mother is to have toward their child contributes to the child's obedience in honoring their parents. In other words, be a parent that your child will desire to honor. Be a parent that your child finds it easy to give honor to. That doesn't mean be a parent who lets your kids do anything they want. That's not parenting. That's not honoring. And you're not going to create a, a, an, a, an environment by which your children are going to honor you if you just let them do whatever they want. Children want boundaries. They want to feel safe. And even though they may kick against those boundaries and they may, may make you think that they want anything but that boundary, the reality is those boundaries within the context of love and what God has established, those boundaries provide safety and security for your children. So we should strive to be parents our children desire to honor and find it easy to give that honor to. We should desire to honor our parents because we desire to honor God. For in honoring our parents, we honor God. Now this command to honor your father and your mother is not conditioned upon the parent's job performance. 
That's what we want to do. We want to basically judge whether someone's worthy of honor based on their job performance. And you'll notice in the commandment, God doesn't put a condition here. He doesn't say, if your parents deserve it, children, honor them. No, it says, honor your father and your mother. So it's not conditional upon a parent's job performance because all parents can perform lousy jobs parenting. All parents make mistakes. All parents, I mean, I'm not telling you kids anything, right? So parents, it's not that you have to be a perfect parent. You should strive to be a parent that your kid wants to honor. You should strive to be a parent that honors and glorifies God. But children, understand this. Honoring your parents is not based on how good you think they're doing in their job. But rather, it's about the position and the authority that's been given to them by God. So children, not only obey your parents in the Lord, but pray for your parents. Some of you children are old enough to understand what I just said. Children, pray for your parents. Some of you children who spend a lot of time asking for things, begin to ask God to help your parents. Parents, teach your children to pray. And one of the greatest things you can teach them to pray for is for them to pray for you. You know, mom and dad, when you blow it, if you are able to go to your child and say, you know what, mommy, daddy didn't react really well to what just happened. And I want you to forgive me for that. And so I want to encourage you. This is why you should pray for mommy and daddy. Pray that God would help mommy and daddy to raise you up and to train you up in the Lord. Pray that mommy and daddy would be parents that would honor and glorify God. I mean, however you do that, whatever language you use, teach parents, teach your children to do that. Pray that they be a glory to God. Parents, pray that your children be a glory to God. Children, pray that your parents be a glory to God. So then he says to fathers, he gives a negative command, a command in the negative, commanding fathers what they are not to do. Fathers do not provoke. And he gives a positive command. He says, fathers, do this though. Bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. To bring our children up in the training and admonition of the Lord is to bring them up to honor God, to honor their parents, to do this in a manner that nurtures a willing obedience and a desire for the things of God. Parents, nurture in your children a willing obedience and a desire for the things of God. I didn't say that would be easy. No one said parenting is easy work. In fact, parenting is hard work. It is. And we're, we, as the body of Christ, we're all involved in this. How do we do that? We do it by 
praying for one another. We do it by encouraging one another. We do it by not having an attitude. I mean, so we got babies in here this morning. I love babies. And sometimes people might say, man, the babies distract me. Can't we just get the babies out of there and put them somewhere else so I can concentrate? No. No, we can't. Because babies are a part of our life. Children are a part of our life. The children in this room right now, the children out there that mom's having to deal with, those children are every bit a part of, just as an important part of this body as, as the oldest among us is. Children are not lesser members of the body of Christ. Children are just as important, just as vital, just as relevant as anybody here. And it is all of our responsibility to help parents and children feel that way and realize that. To encourage one another. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Consider one another. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. But provoking one another to love and good works. We should never make a parent or a child feel like they've been an inconvenience to us. Parents, your children are inconveniences. They are blessings from God. Church, children are not an inconvenience to us. They are the blessing of God. Look at the blessings that are sitting in this room. Yes, they're noisy blessings sometimes. Yes, they cry. Yes, they don't realize always the the environment and the context in which they're in, but they're children. And how are they going to learn? They're going to learn because we're going to all grow up together. We're going we're to bring them in and embrace them and love them, and, and we're going to be patient just like parents have to be patient. And we're going to see them grow up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And we're going to pray And believe that they're going to grow up with a desire for the things of God. That one day they're going to be the worship leaders and the elders and the deacons and the pastors and the teachers. They're going to be the people out there in the workplace who are giving witness to the glory of God through their lifestyle. That's why this is important. That's why Paul commands... Fathers, that you bring your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Nurture a willing obedience and a desire for the things of God. Then Paul moves on and he says, bond servants. So we've gone from the family, we've gone from from wives to husbands to children to fathers. Parents and children. And he's talking about the spirit-filled life in the context of parents and children, in the context of husbands and wives. But he doesn't stop there. And when we get to verse 5, Paul says this, 
He addresses bondservants. If you have a King James Bible, your, your Bible says servants. It's a Greek word, doulos. It means slave. Paul's talking to slaves here. Bondservants, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. So Paul is addressing bondservants and masters. And when he addresses these bondservants or these slaves, he says, Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. According to the flesh was a qualifier. It, it, was, it was a term Paul put in there because he wanted these bondservants to understand you have a master according to the flesh and you need to be obedient to them in the context of this relationship, this is not right, wrong, it's reality. So the reality was, when, the, when this letter was written, the church was full of slaves. And many of those slaves were illiterate, uneducated. Especially when we got to the Gentile world. And Paul's addressing them, and he's telling them, this is what a spirit-filled life looks like. He's not making a political statement. He's speaking to the reality of these people's lives. If it weren't for Christianity, slavery would not have been abolished. It was Christians who brought about the abolition of slavery. So he says, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh in contrast to the true master in heaven who is the master of us all, whether we are slave or free. With fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ is not referring to the attitude they were to have toward any master according to the flesh, but it was an attitude toward our heavenly master. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. With fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, in other words, look beyond this master in the flesh and look to the Lord God, your master in heaven, who is master over you and over those masters of yours in the flesh. Because it is to our master in heaven that we will all ultimately give account. And if we are in Christ, that accounting will be according to the grace and righteousness given to us in Jesus. And if we are not in Christ, it will be according to our own works and our sin, and that will fall far short of the glory of God and the righteousness of God. So the fear and the trembling is because we have to come to understand that no one, regardless of their station in life, rich or poor, slave or free, no one is deserving of his grace. 
and the gift of eternal life. You realize that. There is not one person that was ever worthy of God's grace except for one. And that was Jesus. And he was murdered by the very people he came to bring grace to. So none of us deserve the grace of God. None of us deserve the gift of eternal life. But God has freely given it to all who are in Christ through faith. Paul then says this in verse 6, not with eye service as man pleasers, but as bond servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. God has not called us to play the game to get along. You understand what I'm saying? We should not obey or do what is right just because someone is watching. Oh, the boss is watching. Everybody get to work. Oh man, the boss is coming. Everybody act like you've been working really hard. Or the boss is sitting there watching me, so I work really hard because the boss is watching. That's, that's, not, that's what Paul is saying. Don't do that. Don't work really hard. Don't be diligent. Don't be obedient. Don't do that because someone's watching you. Don't do it just because of eye service. Don't do it to be a man pleaser. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it as unto Christ. Do it because we belong to Jesus. That's what he's saying to them. Do it because you belong to Jesus. And we are commanded to do all things as unto the Lord. So God calls us to obey him and honor him from the heart through our life, through our actions. For his glory, character is determined by what a man does when no one is watching. Anyone can work hard when the boss is there watching over you. But when the boss is gone, what do you do? Character determines what you do. If you you just don't care, because you're not going to get caught, so I can do whatever I want. That's not the kind of character the Bible commands us to have. Character is determined by what we do when man does not see. We're to do all we do with goodwill. That means willingly and with kindness. That means not begrudgingly, not with a bad attitude. I guess I'll do it because I have to. But just know I'm not doing it because I want to. No, that's not goodwill. That's sin. It says, do everything, serve with good will, with willing kindness, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. In serving one another, we serve the Lord, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Paul writes this to all, both slave and free, and it's indicated by the anyone there. God does not give or judge according to a person's status or their station in life. God does not give more grace because someone is a slave or less because they have 
more means and are free. We're judged according to his grace for our life in Christ. Or we are judged according to our sin for a life outside of Christ. We do, we do know that God gives more grace to the humble. In James chapter 4, verse 6, James writes, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The person who says, well, I'll do it anyways, but I don't want to, is a person full of pride. That's not humility. That's not goodwill. Humility is not determined by our social status or our position in life. Humility is determined based on the attitude of our heart and our actions. We can act humble, but be full of pride. But true humility will be contained in our heart and it will be revealed through our words and in our deeds. You may be an employee or an employer. You may be a manager or one who's managed. You may be a big shot or a peon. But all of us serve somebody. Y'all know that song? One of our modern day prophets, his name is Bob Dylan, said... Everybody is going to serve somebody. And there were never any more true words written or sung than that. We all serve somebody. The question is, who? Who is it we serve? Many people live life serving themselves. But we are called in Christ to serve God. This is why Jesus included love thy neighbor as thyself when he referenced the greatest commandment. You find this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39. When they asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he quotes, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, he says in verse 38. And then in verse 39, he says, and the second is like unto it, love Thy neighbor as thyself. We should love the way we desire to be loved. And what we commonly call the golden rule is to treat others the way we would want to be treated. Now, this is a warning and a command that Jesus gives to all. So in Matthew 7, verse 2, Jesus said this. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We always say, don't judge me. The Bible says, don't judge. No, the Bible does not say, don't judge. The Bible says, don't judge hypocritically. The Bible says, judge righteously. Judge with compassion. Judge with mercy. But if you judge without mercy, if you judge without compassion, if you judge harshly, being a hypocrite, then you're going to receive the same judgment from God. Matthew 7 verse 12 says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So if you want to be respected, then show respect. If you want to be loved, then love. If you want to receive mercy, then be merciful. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is obedience and honor to God. 
So God's talking to these slaves. He's talking to these bond servants. He says, this is how you are to live your life in the context of this reality. So you guys who are out there who hate your job and hate your boss, take this into consideration. Realize that your job is a blessing from God. It's a means by which God will provide for you. So go to that job with a good attitude. And if you have a problem with your boss, then pray for your boss. But demonstrate and and give to your boss the honor that's due him, not because he performs really well on the job necessarily, but because he's been placed in a position of authority over you. So honor that. That doesn't mean don't pray for him. Pray for him. If they're doing things that are wrong, that's a different story. Then you got to deal with that. You're called to obey God first and foremost. So we can all learn from what Paul is telling us here because we all have these relationships in some context. And then he says this, there is no partiality with God. So all of these commands regarding our relational interactions are intensely practical, but extremely spiritual. These commands are, get, are to govern our relationships and our interactions with one another so that those relationships, whether it's a husband and a wife, parent and children, employer, employee, slave or master, it doesn't matter what it is, that that relationship would give a glorious witness to Christ and to the church. The command to be filled with the Spirit is given to every believer. Our ability to be filled and to work or to walk in the Spirit is not determined or dictated by our particular circumstances or situation or position in life. Whether I'm rich or poor has nothing to do with whether I am going to live a spirit-filled life. Whether I'm male or female, single or married, has nothing to do with whether I'm going to live a spirit-filled life. Whether I'm battling sickness in my body or whether I'm perfectly healthy has nothing to do with whether I'm going to live a spirit-filled life. Life, Wherever I'm at, whatever I'm dealing with, I am commanded to live a life that's governed and controlled by God's Spirit that lives in me by the grace of God. So whether I'm a wife, a husband, a parent, a child, a slave, a master, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. If I'm in Christ, I'm commanded to be filled and to walk in the Spirit. And there is no partiality with God. He will judge accordingly so walking in the spirit means you are not fulfilling the lust of the flesh this is what paul writes in galatians 5:16 walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh how do i know if i'm in the spirit if you are christ if you belong to christ romans 8:9 then you are in the spirit so if you're in the spirit walk in the spirit Walking in the Spirit means you're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, and your walk is honoring God and giving glory to Christ. This is a privilege. We should see it as such, that God gives us the privilege and the grace to do that, to walk according to the Spirit. So God has done this. He's established all of this, all of these relationships. He's established all of this for His glory. Because we know the family is established by God for his own glory, we should also know that the enemy 
is doing everything in his power to oppose, to degrade, to destroy the family. Anybody ever had a family under attack? Anyone ever been in a family, been in a situation where you feel like all hell has come against you? Well, that's probably because it has. And why has it? It has because God established and ordained the family for his glory, and the enemy is committed to degrade the glory of God. Your family is for the glory of God. That means you have become, you are a target for the enemy. So you, fathers, this is why the Bible charges you to take your rightful position, to take your authority, and to be wise and to oversee your families, to protect your families, to war and do battle for your families, and to protect them from the onslaught of the enemy. That is not a personal attack against you. It is an attack against the glory of God. And you should do this not just for your own personal benefit and for the personal benefit of your family. You should do this for the glory of God. You should fight for your family first and foremost for the glory of God. And if you do that, you're going to reap the benefits of it at every level in your relationship. And this is why we see division and dysfunction in the family throughout our culture. We see it in all aspects of our life and culture. But it all begins with the family. These little children in here today are all going to grow up and become something. What are they going to grow up and become? It doesn't really matter what they grow up and become, but it does matter that they grow up and they honor God in whatever they become. So whether they're plumbers or electricians or doctors or lawyers or governors, are they going to honor God in whatever they are? Mothers, homemakers, are you going to honor God and glorify God? No greater work can be done than the work of a mother raising her children. No harder work can ever be done than the work of a mother who is tasked with raising her children. Dad, you don't get off easy either. So the two places the enemy attacked is most destructive and most disturbing is in the home and in the church because it's in the home and it's in the church that we see this concept this reality of family because God created the family and the church to function together as they are linked together by the life of Christ so God's called his church a family because that's exactly what it is we are the family of God. And we should embrace one another as family and love one another as family and bear with one another as family. Pray for one another as family. Support one another, encourage one another as family. When you see a mom struggling with her child, Give her a word of encouragement. I'm so glad that you came and you brought your child and you came with your family to church. It blesses me. Because you know what? I I can just imagine sometimes moms leave environments like this and they've struggled with their children and, 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 and 
They wonder, man, was I just a distraction to everybody? It might be nice to hear someone say, you know, I'm so glad you came. What a blessing that you brought your child to the house of God. That's important, church. That's what family does. I always ask people, you know, every time the church has an event, you know, we want to know, do we have a babysitter? And that's appropriate sometimes. When we did the parenting seminar, we provided childcare for the parents. But I always ask people this. When you go to a family reunion, do you get a babysitter so you can go to the family reunion? Or do you take your kids with you? No, you take your kids with you. Because part of the point of the family reunion is you want the family to meet the family. Well, we're a family. And the point is, we're all family together. Let's love together, grow together, worship together. Let's all help these children grow up together, understanding the importance, the magnitude of what all of this is and the importance that they are to the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. So from that foundation of family in our homes and in our church, wherever we go, we carry the witness of his grace and of his glory with us. The enemy will attack that witness of God's glory in every place and in every way that he can. Therefore, we must be wise as serpents to use the words of Jesus and as harmless as doves with absolute boldness and courage in the power of his spirit. That's harmless to one another. We should decimate the kingdom of darkness, but we shouldn't decimate one another. Here's here's the good news. Though the battle rages and the enemy has been defeated and our victory is secure in Christ, we are all called to fight the good fight of faith, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we're called to stand. Stand therefore knowing that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to pull down strongholds, to cast down imaginations, to bring every thought into captivity. Those weapons are not of this world. They are mighty through God and through the power of his spirit. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5. So as believers, we're called to stand And next week, we're going to finish this chapter, and we're going to talk about how we do that. How do we stand against the onslaught of the enemy? So we'll finish the chapter next week. That's what we're going to do. But this week, I want to challenge you to humble yourself, as Peter says, under the mighty hand of God. Let me read that scripture to you. I quoted you James chapter 4, verse 6. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care upon him, for he cares for you. Being sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about... like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Trust that God will lift you up. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to do that for the glory of God. Amen. Let's all stand.
So children, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a report next week from your parents of how obedient you were after being being here and hearing what God tells you to do. No, I'm really not. But you never know. Some parents may tell me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word is so amazing, so powerful. That you've given us your word for our good. You've given us your word, Lord, that we might be changed and transformed, that our minds would be renewed, that we would be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Lord, as we have read and proclaimed, heard your gospel today, God, we ask that you would do a work in each of our hearts by your Spirit, that as children you would help us to be obedient and honoring to our parents, as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers, that you would help us to obey the command to bring our children up in the Lord, to do the hard work of parenting and the hard work of discipling our children. That is the body of Christ, Father, we would come around these parents and these children and be there to support them and pray for them, to love them, to encourage them, and to make them feel the value that they are to the body of Christ. Help all of us, God, to live life submitted to you, Lord, to be obedient to you, to do unto others as you would have, as we would have others do to us, that our lives would honor you and glorify you in every way, especially in our relationships with one another as we give witness to the world of Christ and the church. Father, we thank you for this. We ask that you be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.